Welcome to a special edition of Breaking Badness. In this bonus episode, you'll hear from Harshal Parit, CEO and co-founder at Tromso. Tim Helming and I picked Harshal's brain on how to galvanize organizations to be more secure by embedding security in their DNA, building bridges between developers and defenders, and more. This bonus episode of Breaking Badness is next. Welcome to our special edition of Breaking Badness, recorded on March 31st, 2022. With us today, CEO and co-founder at Tromso, Harshal Parik. In this special episode, we are hoping to pick his brain on strategies to make organizations more secure from the inside out. We're also joined by Domain Tools security evangelist, Tim Helming. And I'm your host for the day, Kelsey LaBelle. I'm mostly just here to tell bad puns. Uh, with that, welcome to the podcast, Harshal. We're psyched to have you on today. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. It's a pleasure to be here, Kelsey. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I know that you all just started your own podcast over there at Toronto. Right. I have that right? Yes, we did. Uh, we just released our first episode last week. And I got to tell you, hosting a podcast is not easy. But it's fun, isn't it? It is a lot of fun. <laughs> the best part is, obviously, I get to learn a bunch of stuff. But, you know, it uh, it is very, very um, uh, educational and just preparing for the podcast, just learning about all the things and obviously getting to know people. That's Absolutely. Great. Yeah, that's a lot yeah. of fun. We'll definitely be tuning in. Yeah, we'll give it a listen for sure. And we'll learn things. Everybody will learn things. It'll be great. <laughs> awesome well for our listeners um who are tuning in for the first time and those who might have forgotten oftentimes with these special series what we like to do is learn a bit about our special guests typically we, we play this game called two truths and a lie where um you know we we share between us three co-hosts three article titles for potential scenarios that happened the previous week and then we try to suss try to suss out which one of those lie. But um, because this is a more personal episode, um, we do our best to shake down our special guests for personally identifiable information. This is not a GDPR friendly podcast without a doubt. <laughs> um, <laughs> but in all seriousness, you know, I obviously I jest. we're going to be asking Harshal to share three statements about himself. And then Tim and I are going to spend the entire episode trying to get to know you um, share information with our listeners, and then we'll come back at the end and we'll do our best to guess how you tried to deceive us. Does that sound good? It sounds great. I'll try not to embarrass myself too much in the process. <laughs> no, no, the heat is on us as far as trying to be the guessers, uh, uh, to be clear. So we'll see how we do. Yeah, and I lost my dignity in uh, episode two, I think. So um, <laughs> we'll see how this goes for us. <laughs> All right. Okay, so... Here are three things about me. Um, the first one, I have two dogs, golden retrievers. Second thing is my wife is also in cybersecurity. And the third one is I can swim 10 laps in a Olympic sized swimming pool. Which one of them is mm. the false one? Ooh. See, we're going to have to use some very indirect methods of guessing this by inferring it from other things that you say in this conversation that's going to be mostly about InfoSec. So that's going to be tricky. I don't, I don't have an early guess yet, but, you know, as we go through the show, maybe something will, I don't know, maybe something will occur to me. Good thing. Tim, you planted those dogs um, in your room, right? That might bark to try to get a rise out of Harshal. That, um, that's right. Correct. Correct. I was going to judge by, by his response, like, mm, does this sound like a dog owner or not? Uh, trying to figure that out. You know, it's even more nuanced to figure out, is this actually the owner of two golden retrievers? Or maybe he does have two dogs that are something else. Well, only, if your dogs, a only if your dogs could see the cat around here in my room, it would be more fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. 
Yeah. No, it, it wouldn't be more fun for those of us who might have to edit the uh, episode later on. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. Well, in all seriousness. Great. Yeah. Tom or Tom. Tim did just um, open his home to a second foster dog. Well, the second dog, but a foster dog. Yes. Was it yesterday, Tim? It was. Well, almost. It was the night before. So, the yeah, before. things are it's early days yet. Uh, and. There have been some uh, some outbreaks of barking and <laughs> squabbling, but there's also <laughs> been a lot of a lot of silent play, which is a really great thing when they when they go at it like that without making any noise other than the like jingling of their little tags. It's pretty good. That's awesome. Do the two dogs play with each other? I don't know how how it works between two dogs. Well, the way it works uh, with <laughs> Andy Herschel, <laughs> <laughs> the way it works with um, mine is that the dog that we already had loves nothing more on this earth than to play with other dogs. So, like uh, the the new dog would have had to be a real stick in the mud for her not to like like it because uh, she just she lives for that kind of play. So cool! All right. <laughs> See how we did that seamlessly. Mm-hmm. Social engineering. Social right engineering. Here on Breaking Badness. <laughs> I think dogs might be the secret to OPSEC. Um, yeah. Or the opposite of OPSEC. <laughs> the well, anti-OPSEC. We'll see, we'll see how, how they figure in the next big hacking movie, whatever that is. <laughs> well, some companies are making their logos based on dogs. So, you know, there's, there's something. Yeah. Oh. Ruckus, right? And, and uh, Sneak. Yep. Yep, oh, and, yeah. uh, and doubtless some other ones. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, I suppose I should change gears so we can learn more next about your wife. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but instead, I'll ask, uh, I'll be less selfish and we'll, we'll talk more about what our listeners want to hear, which is, um, is understanding more about your personal journey into security. And that's something I, I do selfishly, I'll say, love asking about because oftentimes the folks' paths to where they are now is not linear, especially because this industry is so new, relatively speaking. So it's always fun to hear how people got to the place they are today where they're sitting in a chair and having a conversation with us about dogs and puns. Um, so how did you catch the this, this security bug, Arshul? Yeah, that's a, that's a fun story. I love to tell this story. When um, this is back in the day when security was not a mainstream thing, but actually, I was in high school. Um, there used to be a newspaper where they would have different, um, you know, focused topic areas on Sunday in the summer. Uh, I remember this was during high school. There was um, uh, a series of articles on this guy, this famous hacker back in the day called Kevin Mitnick. Now, I don't know if you have heard his name, but. He used to be, well, he's still a very famous person, but uh, at that time, he was incredibly famous and he had written a bunch of books around there and stuff like that. So I read his few articles, uh, a few articles about him in the newspaper, and that got me excited and interested in like, the heck is this security thing um, and phone fracking and, you know, like hacking into AT&T networks. And those were the kinds of things that were... Uh, that were happening at that time. So I uh, started going to the local library, uh, local uh, university who gave me access to the library and I started reading a books on him. And that was just such amazing drama, amazingly well-written books, obviously, but it was super exciting, you know, more exciting than anything else um, in, in the world of technology for me, at least at that time. So I started doing something closest to security, which is, you know, learning about networking and so on and so forth. And when dial-up internets became very famous, uh, I spent a lot of time trying to get into, you know, what used to be cyber cafes back in the day with dial-up internet connections and uh, trying to get their passwords uh, as a young kid and, uh, you know, stealing their internet connections and whatnot. But fast forward, I landed up in Kansas City to... Uh, to pursue my uh, my graduate degree in Kansas City because Sprint was a big deal at that time. And Sprint had a huge uh, networking research program in University of Missouri, Kansas City. 
So the day I land there, the next day, this is my first day in Kansas. The, the, the next day, there's a conference uh, in downtown. And who guess who the guest speaker was? No. Uh, Mr. Yes. Mitnick? That's right. Yeah. Right. So the next day, uh, I had a picture taken with Kevin Mitnick. And it was one of the uh, happiest day of my life at that time. I'll take clues uh, that I landed in the right city for 100, Alex. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, Please tell me you have that photo framed like on your desk or something. What? Uh, I have amazing. stored it in my Google Drive so I don't lose it forever. So, uh, But yes, I do have that picture. Uh, and then eventually uh, I started working for a company called uh, Fishnet Security, which is now Optiv. And that's how really my, uh, my career started in security. Now, I'm assuming fishnet was spelled with a PH. Is that correct? No, it was the regular fish. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so many missed uh, fishing puns, you know, <laughs> so much missed opportunity. Um, wow, what a story. What an exciting start. Yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. And and Mitnick is a fascinating figure. By the way, Harshal, did you ever uh, also read The Cuckoo's Egg? Yes, I did. Isn't that a great read? Oh, man, so much fun. Yeah. For anybody that's not heard of it, I mean, this is one of the seminal books about cybersecurity and one of the earliest uh, by Cliff Stahl. So if you have not read that one, do yourself a favor. It doesn't matter how much the technologies have changed since that was written. It's still just an awesome read. So Harshal, we, we're, we're fast forwarding. Like you said, you you were at Fishnet, um, which was acquired by Optiv, and that was really like the up, it sounds like a pivotal moment in your career outside, of course, the um, the opportunity to meet your all-time most inspirational uh, human life form <laughs> at the right. Sprint Gambit, you know, in Kansas City. So are there any other key moments that have defined or significantly changed the trajectory in your career? Well, I'll tell you what. So I, was, I spent a lot of time in Kansas City, right? And I had this buddy of mine. He... Um, he visited California. I had never visited California at that time. So he came back from San Francisco and he told me this phenomenal stories about, you know, how you can drive down the Highway 1, you know, drive by Santa Monica, Santa Barbara, go all the way down to San Diego. But most interestingly, you know, you're in the San Francisco Bay Area. Every single tech company is here and there's so much fun. There's the Napa Valley, there's, you know, Tahoe and there's mountains and everything, the beach and the water and the ocean, it's such a phenomenal place to be in. So I was like, okay, I'm done with Kansas City and I don't wanna listen to cows moo and hear the wheat grow. So let's go to Kansas, uh, let's go to California. So I went to California, I came here and I was excited, but I realized that I got super shortchanged. It takes eight hours to get to Tahoe and it should really take three hours. The beach is always, always super cold. You can't really go in the water. It is so, so cold. I have to drive down eight hours down to San Diego for reasonable temperature water. Anyways, uh, <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, that is kind of a bait and switch, if you think that about is. it. That yeah, like, is. It is, right? The way yeah. it's sold. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, coming out to California, it's been amazing. This whole exposure to the startup world and all the high tech, uh, the most advanced work in our domains, in our field. A lot of it, it is concentrated. Not, not, this is not the only place where amazing work is happening, but uh, this is everything. Uh, inception of so many interesting projects, so many interesting initiatives, a lot of concentrated tech talent up here. I think just getting exposure to the, uh, you know, the, the dense talent network here has been very, very transformative in, in how my career has been changed, how I've shaped my career now, how I think about my career as well. So, yeah, I mean, not directly related to my career, but, you know, moving here has been um, very, um, uh, a very important part of uh, how my career has uh, changed. Yeah, it's amazing in this day and age to how a location can have such an impact or no impact now on your career in the in the post 
mid mid late COVID. I don't really know how to define where we're at. I guess we'll figure Nobody that can tell. out later. Wherever yeah. we are in COVID. Wherever we it's are. It's post the start of COVID. How's yeah. COVID? Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> one day I aim for something more optimistic to describe the current state. But um, yeah, it sounds like location and timing have had such a major influence um, on your, your professional life and obviously to your personal life. So it's always fun to hear about um, about life outside of the, the professional world too. And I do think that's funny about North Carolina or North Carolina, Northern California, that there's this, this sense that it's warm all the time, but it's also quite, quite hazy too. And so the, yeah, San Diego really is where you can bet on the sunshine there and vitamin D that's for sure. It's the only place in the world where the fog has a name, right? I that's mean, besides right. just the fog. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> When your weather patterns sound like a thriller and or horror film, that's always a good sign, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, something, the, the last question I really like to ask on this topic, um, and I like to ask this at the beginning too, because oftentimes people like to refer back to this because it's oftentimes maps to their passion and why they're doing what they are now, um, which is just, are there any myths in this industry that you like to debunk? Any myths in cybersecurity? Hmm. Yeah, you know, one thing I would say is, okay, so now that I am wearing a little bit of a different hat, so I've been a security professional all my life. I've done network security. I've done software security. I've done identity and access management, security operations, all kinds of things. Um, one of the things that I've continuously heard uh, as a security professional from everyone around me is that People don't care about security. Typically, that ends up uh, people end up building that opinion because they are they seem to be pushing a boulder up the hill when nobody else in their company cares about what they're doing or you know is at least meeting the expectations of security people. I think that's a huge myth in a lot of cases. With the missing context in in almost every single case is the organization and how important to the business um, is cybersecurity. I think that drives a lot of opinion. Typically, if you ask anyone, is cybersecurity important to you? Nobody would say no. And it's not just lip service. People care about it, but it gets tempered based on, you know, what the business is and you know, what are the business priorities and things like that. So there's always this additional context, uh, which a lot of times people infer as security people infer as, you know, meaning that the rest of the organization doesn't care about security. Um, the reality is, uh, Everyone does, but there's also like 25 other things that people have to care about. So that's, I guess that's my, uh, that's my take on it. Yeah, I think that's a good perspective. Um, you know, the other, the other one that I hear a lot of the time is just security is a cost center and that's the chief way that it's looked at. And so, um, and you know, maybe that's for a lot of folks, maybe they think of that as being kind of related to the the notion that the company doesn't care about security. But I, I agree with you. Like, I, I think you'd be really hard pressed to find an organization these days that does not, uh, that doesn't care about and, and probably care a lot about cybersecurity. And they don't have to be a technology company, right? Because there's just no organization that doesn't have a cyber presence of some sort. So, uh, yeah, so I think that that makes sense. I was just going to say, and a lot of times there's also this missing empathy from security people's side as well. It's it's not just one side, but I think a lot of times we become too um, too theoretical, I guess, or too unpragmatic in forming those opinions. If we if we have a little bit more empathy uh, for each other, I think it brings us to a much better place. Yeah, I really agree with that. I think the, the the cooperation across these different parts of the business is really, you know, when I see it working for some value of right, um, it's where you see a lot of that kind of cooperation. Well, for folks who are a little less familiar, can tell us a little bit about Tromso and and then after you tell us a little bit about just the summary of, of what you do, uh, I would love to hear a little bit about what inspired your vision for it, because, you know, you could have picked, you've just mentioned all these different aspects of security that you worked in. So how'd you pick this one? 
That's a great question. And, you know, I, I, where we are today, what I'm doing today, what I'm spending my day and night and every breathing second in my entire day today is really inspired based on what I've done in the past. And as a security practitioner, what the, the problem that I felt personally, along with you know every single person in my team, I've had the pleasure of working with some amazing people over the past several years. The problem was that we as security people, we spent so much time and energy building out these amazing security initiatives, you know, getting best of the breed tools and spending a lot of time you know, looking at things, investigating things, figuring out you know, some of the most complex ways that uh, we were vulnerable, identifying risks and, you know, overall just spending a lot of time building really good security initiatives. The problem was that we couldn't really make an impact in terms of getting those risks managed or issues fixed or mitigations in place. And that was a constant struggle with us, right? Uh, meaning every single security engineer, um, every single team that I had worked in in the past, the biggest blocker was not the budget or the tools or you know the people and all of that stuff. It was mostly, we're doing all this work how can we help the company actually get better? Put those controls in place that need to be implemented. You know, everyone knows, well, well I guess Log4j or uh, Spring for Shell, all of those things are uh, very interesting. It gets a lot of attention and people actually um, fig have fixed those things very quickly. But historically, when you find those bugs and when you, you know, when you have to ask somebody else outside of security to do things to mitigate those risks, it has been a challenge. And that was a big problem. And so we, we spent a lot of time uh, trying to understand how can we make security more relevant to the rest of the organizations? How can we make security more uh, ingrained in their workflows? And how can we make security a first-class citizen for all of the other aspects? And our focus was really software security because, you know, we were tech company people and we knew software development really well. So my co-founder and I, we set out on a mission to make security easy for developers. Because at the end of the day, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. A lot of times when you talk to developers, they understand that you know, building secure code is important. Building secure systems is important. Building secure cloud platforms is important. But a lot of times either they don't know how to do it or it's not their top priority because they have 15 other things to work on. So, so we, we built Tromso to solve exactly that problem um, and make security less of, uh, of a mystical art for, for developers, for non-security professionals. How do we make it easy? How do we make it natural for them? How do we bring security to the, to the table for what developers are working on every single day? So Tromso um, is a platform that makes it incredibly easy for developers by automating and integrating security controls in the development lifecycle. Gotcha. That's that's really interesting. And uh, yeah, I can see the appeal of that because you're you're kind of constantly trying to tilt the deck in favor of security because so often it feels like the gravitational pull of things is away from security. So if you can figure out ways to to tilt that gravitational pull, you've scored a major win uh, for the organization. And whether it's using uh, tools like Tromso or whether it's a company that instills particular best practices and makes them stick, um, it's still trying to to change that uh, change that equation a bit. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, a similar pattern had happened a few years ago, maybe a decade ago, somewhere around that time frame. So if you think about back in the day, we used to have software developers who would write code and they would ship it over to quality engineers. And there would be teams of quality or testing people who would test their code, right? So there was a different team who was writing code. There was a different team who would perform testing. And that was the norm. But with, uh, with agile practices and DevOps, what has happened is those testing teams or QA teams, they've practically disappeared in modern engineering organizations, right? All of that testing is now done by developers themselves. So they don't, they don't have a different quality testing team. That quality testing is being done by developers themselves. 
through the CI/CD processes where they run their own test suites and whatnot, they get their own results and they fix it. So now developers are responsible for testing of the quality of the software that they're building. Security is sort of very similar to that. I mean, not sort of, it is very similar to that in a way that developers need to start adopting and they will, right? I mean, there are early indicators of that process already starting. Now you see systems like GitHub and GitLab and all of them are uh, you know, natively shipping security scanning systems and tools and what have you. And, you know, fast forward five years from now, my hypothesis is that developers and security will be in the same situation where developers and quality testing is today, which is in a, in a, in a few years from now, developers will write their own security tests and they'll do their own security testing and uh, act on the results and start fixing their own things. Yeah, you know, I, I remember the, I guess, the bad old days of exactly what you're talking about. The paradigm was that it just, the code got chucked over the fence to somebody else. And uh, that fence is the problem. And um, so you guys are helping to break that down with what you're doing. I was going to ask you about how security more or less gets a seat at the table within the organization. But I think I think you've kind of covered that to some extent, talking not only about what you're doing at Tromso, but I think we we kind of reached some of that a little bit earlier. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit just to to bring the focus out to the larger world and some of the things that are going on uh, right now that, that that are getting a lot of attention. Um, and uh, here's here's one of them, and I guess this is a fairly big, broad question. So treat this in whatever way makes the most sense to you. But but when we think about security writ large and the implications it has on society, on national security, et cetera, what do you think, and, and especially I should also mention as we sit here at a time when uh, we've been uh, in the midst of the real plague of ransomware for a couple of years now. I mean, it, ransomware is older than a couple of years, but it's been a couple of years that it's been... Um, top of mind in boardrooms and, you know, C-suites and, and whatnot, and, and in the mainstream news, not just the industry news, right? And also, of course, you know, now with the, the war in Ukraine, uh, lots of attention to state-sponsored things and whatnot. But, but what would you say in the big picture, do you think is going to move the needle the most when it comes to organizations, public as, as well as private organizations, becoming more secure, you know, we're never going to say becoming secure, right? But becoming substantially, importantly more secure than they are today. I mean, is it things like, uh, there's been endless debate about whether compliance, regulatory compliance makes a real difference with that. And and you could get really solid arguments on either side of that question. And I've heard many of them. Uh, cyber insurance is a newer force on the scene. Um, and I, I personally think um, we're, we're going to see a more influence from that than we have uh, to date. But, you know, and then there's the question of government intervention in terms of, of policies or uh, even consequences, regulatory consequences for lapses in security. What's your own sense of, uh, in the big picture, what are going to be the dynamics that change things the most? I mean, that's a, that's a good question. My my perspective on this is that businesses, um, private businesses, will only do things for two reasons, right? So the first reason is if it helps their bottom line, if it helps their business profitability. The second reason is if they are forced to do that by some sort of government regulation. Now, the second part, which is the government regulation, I mean, it's, it's fairly cut and dry. You know, if the federal government or compliance standards requires to do something, then people will just end up doing it. Although they will tend to do the bare minimum just to get by the compliance checkbox, right? But on the earlier, on the first point, which is what is relevant to the business? And I think that's where the awareness about ransomware, the potential implications uh, of your business entirely shutting down for several weeks or several months because of you know not following good security practices. Those things hit home the point of why security should be done, at least in a in a good hygiene way and you know 
that it has to be looked at at the senior most level of the company. Now, I was just talking to somebody, some one of the CISOs who's in the shipping business, whose whose company is in the shipping business, and they're a very modern freight management shipping company. They re, they deal with real containers, not just Docker containers. Um, and one of the things that he was mentioning is uh, they are a player, a newer player in a centuries old industry where there are their competitors are a hundred year old company who've been in shipping business for you know, for that long, they have uh, not paid a lot of attention to cybersecurity. And what ended up happening was the ransomware uh, infected in almost every single system that they had in their in their primary data center. And they had to shut down operations for pretty much almost a month. And I think about this being, you know, one of the biggest shipping companies that manages significant portion of freight movement across the globe. And I mean, this has literally global implications of uh, things not being able to move around uh, around the world. So, you know, when things like this happens, there is just a general, uh, you know, more, uh, uh, more awareness, but also more recognition of the implications uh, of not following cybersecurity practices, right? I think these are the things that, that will help Build um, a better, um, uh, better hygiene across the broad base of companies, and then things. You know, it, there's also a trickle down kind of um, uh, uh, process happening here because now larger companies who have been affected by ransomware or who have cybersecurity as one of their top priorities, they'll start driving their requirements. If not already, they will ask and demand more things from their suppliers, from their providers, the third parties they work with. So overall, this will help the security in general get better. But I think, you know, all of these supply chain attacks, uh, all of these ransomware things, uh, they are definitely making cybersecurity a board level topic more so than ever before. And just another tangential thing is, you know, I think Kelsey mentioned earlier that cybersecurity is fairly new as an industry. And if you really think about it, CISOs have been in position for what the past 20 years and pretty much that's it, right? Um, they, we didn't have a lot of legitimate CISOs before um, uh, 20, 25 years from now. Yeah, and I, I think even 20 years ago, frankly, it would have been a bit hard to find companies that had um, CISOs as opposed to just the uh, maybe CISO or right. even just CIOs, right? right. Who just right. ran the IT organization. And uh, yeah, so so absolutely, those are those are some some sea changes. Uh, yeah, and and so this is the CISO as a profession has been around, let's just say, twenty years, right? So now is a time when we are seeing not the second but maybe the third generation of CISOs who actually have that executive capabilities, who can fit in to a board of directors, who who can report directly to a CEO of a large company. Uh, that was not the case before. You know, early on there was a lot of CIOs wearing the security hat, not a full-time CISOs. So when you have somebody who has an executive level seniority and is a full-time security professional, that type of a persona just brings much stronger awareness and control uh, over security within the broader organization. So I think this this decade is when security really hits maturity because we have CISOs who fit into the board who are executive leaders at the same level as any other C-suite um, a member of a company. So I think this is just now when security is becoming more mature. Yeah, I think when the story is written 50 years from now, I think you're right. I think you're going to see this period of time as where it really came into its own as, as a discipline of that level. I'm going to shift gears a little bit here to a question that is one of the, the subjects of uh, another of the subjects of endless debate within this community and it has to do with automation and so what i'm curious about here within the the security shop so to speak and define that however you want to you can answer this in terms of a sock you can answer it in terms of devsecops um, and you know secure coding practices and secure development procedures and whatnot but what are some of the things that in your experience are are good things to automate that you know maybe not enough companies are automating in your opinion and conversely are there things that you 
see people choosing to automate that, in your opinion, maybe aren't such a good idea to automate? Ooh. Um, I'll tell you, uh, you know, in, in my experience, so we've, we've been trying to automate a lot of things for a long time as well. Uh, and the type of automation changes as the maturity of the company grows, right? So initially, you know, the, uh, okay, so let me take a step back. So in, in terms of the, one of the, the best automation tools that everyone got so excited about in the world of SOC was when store tools came on board, right? Phantom, Demisto, and a bunch of other ones. But uh, if you really looked at the way people were using those tools, it had a lot of capabilities. The tools are really amazing, fantastic, very extensible tools, but vast majority of the teams were only automating phishing email response back in the day. Right. Now it's much more sophisticated. You could do a lot more things now, but uh, it's the the things that can be automated versus what people actually do automate. There's a huge delta between them, and I'm not exactly sure why that is. It could be related to every company has a different process, and not everyone knows how to really automate things. Security is especially tricky because we have to deal with different people. I mean, when we do our jobs, we end up either finding problems in other people's work or we're protecting other people's work from badness, right? Um, so it inherently has to deal with more types of people. So the things that you can automate end up being very tactical operational things like moving data, moving information from one system to another system. Um, so, so I don't know. I mean, those things are fairly straightforward in terms of if it's just data transfer, obviously you shouldn't be you know, creating spreadsheets and sending emails, that's not the best use of time, filing JIRA tickets, like all, all of those tactical things should be automated. But things that need human interaction, which unfortunately has, uh, has a higher percentage of things in, in the world of security, we just have to interact with other people a lot. I don't know if that can be automated. I don't know, what do you guys think, Tim Kelsey? I mean, I, you know, at the risk of sounding like I'm, I'm just, uh, I don't know, buttering you up here, I, I feel like a lot of what you're doing um, in Tromso is really helping with that in bringing in, and it's not necessarily exactly the same version of automation that we're talking about, where it's like automating a phishing response or something like that, but baking in the security practices in to, right in from the get-go in the, um, in the coding of, of things, I think that's... I think that's really important when it's when it's baked in. In a sense, it's automated because it's not a reaction uh, that happens later on when you discover that that something was uh, has got some some security issues. Um, other than that, you know what we see what, when we talk to practitioners all the time uh, here at Domain Tools. We're most often we're kind of talking to SOC folks and some of the places where they're doing automation and seeing a lot of success with it is things like enrichment of the logs and alerts that, they, um, that they're getting so that they get better and quicker context on those things so that they can sort out which stuff requires the most attention right away and, and which can be maybe put in a secondary tier. So we're seeing you know, folks make really good use of some of the technologies out there for that. But, um, but you know, how do they reduce the number of events that are occurring in the environment to begin with? Well, that's where some of the practices that you're advocating for, I think, really become pretty important. Right. And I think that's a common problem between both uh, the SOC persona or the software security persona, which is everyone is dealing with massive volumes of data, whether the data is threat intel sources or logs or you know intelligence and multiple sources of data coming in in different formats, all of those um, uh, are, are necessary because our job is to really identify signals between you know this massive in, in massive volumes of data. So um, and those are the types of things that you know you can't have humans do. It's just not possible. You're not going to have hundreds and hundreds of people just manually sorting through data pieces. So it becomes super relevant and valuable to have automation in this. We're kind of at the cusp of this change in in the world of software security where this. The volume of data is uh, is not yet similar to the volume that SOC teams have to deal with, but it's kind of getting there in a way because of 
how quickly developers are building new software, the third-party dependencies being used, multiple sources of this type of information from your supply chain systems, from your source control, from cloud, and all of those things are adding to you know, the, the massive volumes of data that AppSec teams have to deal with, which they didn't have to deal with before. Um, and it's the same job in a way, you know, enrich data from multiple different sources to find that needle in the haystack. And that, if you don't automate it, you just can't do it, right? It's it's not like uh, it's optimizing uh, for doing things faster. It's just, it's not humanly possible. You, you can't take hundreds of thousands or millions of signals and manually uh, identify what's wrong with it. You have to automate those things. And I think that's becoming a problem now for application security people too. Yeah, Arshul, something that you've, uh, you've talked about already in this episode that is interesting to me is I think thinking about the the core limitations and challenges that both the developers and the security practitioners face and in, in an odd way what you're describing right with sprints and the agile method and security practitioners with so many alerts and everything's on fire always it's like both of their enemies actually time in a weird way, um, just not having enough of it and being behind the eight ball. And all that to say, even though there might be the, sh the shared enemy, at least in my mind, it seems like there's this chasm that exists between two critical functions, those who build and those who defend. And I'm, of course, referring to developers and security practitioners. It's almost as if we need to bring in the DSM some might call it the diagnostic and statistical model, but in this case, perhaps the developer security model. But uh, all this to say, how do you really bridge the gap between security practitioners and developers? That's a great question. Um, you know, a lot of times we go in with the expectation that developers should just know security. We go about that path by teaching them more and more about security. Um, and how to write secure code and how to do threat bonding and all of that stuff. I think it's it's great for, it's absolutely necessary for every developer to have a basic understanding of security. But let's be real, they're never going to be the experts in security. Heck, security people are never experts in security, right? Um, it's a changing world. And the, the, the roles, the way they're shifting is that developers should, or they already if they don't, but they should have some basic levels of, you know, uh, how to write secure code and what have you. But that is not going to be foolproof. It's it's things like, you know, we've been teaching people not to click on links uh, in email or not to click on things that will get ransomware on their machines for a long time. But it is still happening. You know, it's uh, it's humans. Humans make mistakes. It always happens. So the way you, you prevent those types of situations is you just build preventive controls in place uh, because people will make you know bad choices, um, whether intentional or not, it doesn't matter. Training will never solve this problem entirely. So you have to put preventive controls. In the world of software security, those preventive controls don't exist. In, in the world of SOC, in the world of endpoints or other things that there are so many preventive controls you can you can place you can you can you can, you can buy some of the software that will actually prevent ransomware uh, you can do things that will protect you against a vast majority of um, uh, you know the, the simple types of attacks and what have you but in software security there's there's really not much control you can put in what developers are doing uh, just because we don't have that tooling security teams don't have the tooling of preventing a developer from making a silly mistake. So that is really what is needed um, to, to drive a realistic change because as humans, and especially as engineers, we all tend to um, take the shortest path to get our job done. I mean, that's what makes someone a good engineer, right? Like you're, you're, you're building a feature, you're writing code, in the most efficient way without having to write a single line of code extra. So engineers are not going to do things for security if they're not required to do it. And you know, it's it's fair because if no one's forcing them to do things, they're not going to do it. It's not a part of their job. So how do we force people? How do we make sure that they're meeting certain standards, meeting certain controls, they are building uh, software? Otherwise, they're not going to be allowed to be built, right? So are not going to be um, authorized to deploy. 
So some of those control mechanisms don't exist in the world of um, uh, software development uh, from a security perspective. And that's what we really need as an industry, which is go beyond training and put those gates, put those controls in place. So, and they have to be reasonable. I'm not saying, you know, you have to sit in an ivory tower and dictate what anyone can and cannot do. Uh, that, that space of reasonable practical controls um, and, and being able to implement and enforce it that is what is needed to really make a difference in the world of uh, software security. Yeah, that's a great point, Herschel. And um, in the interest of time, and man, I feel so distracted from the central purpose, which is knowing which statement was a lie. Um, <laughs> but the, the final question I have for you is, you know, what perspective, and you, you toss this around a little bit um, in response to my last question, but what perspective would you share with security practitioners about developers' experience and vice versa? And really, if there are any final thoughts you want to uh, you know, leave our listeners with before we um, sashay into two truths and a lie. Right. So just one closing thought. I mean, I, I, it's sort of continuation of my earlier rant, <laughs> which is developers will only do things that they're absolutely forced and required to do. There will be some people who want to write the best quality, best, you know, most secure code ever, but most of them, let's be honest, they're not going to do it. Um, but at the same time, security is just, you know, one of the 15 things that they have to do. So, I mean, if I was to share something from a developer persona, now I've never been a developer. I've, I, you know, I'm not a, a, a decent developer myself, but I've talked to a lot of them because I want to solve their problems as well from a security perspective. Um, so, it, yeah, unless and until you make it make secure path the easy path for them, if security is the easiest thing that they can do to get their job done, that is the best way you can get adoption for security from developers. All right, did that yeah. did answer your question? Jason? It did. I just the the moment from oh my gosh, both you're going to have to remind me of this movie. But when Tom Cruise goes, Tom Cruise goes, help me, help you. What oh, film wasn't was that? That? Uh, that that was uh, uh, oh, it was the Show Me the Money movie, right? Show Me the Money. Yeah, why yeah, can't which, I think of that what, to what save is my, the, my life? Oh my God, this is terrible. <gasps> we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to fix this in post. Oh gosh. Well, Arshal, thanks for being such a good sport talking about security and developers and Tromso and your experience. Now, Tim and I, I think, are on the hot seat. Um, yep. I. Yep. It's I, moment of truth time, so to speak, or a moment. Moment of lie, yeah. Um, can you do us a favor really quick, Harshal, and read those statements one last time for us? Uh, I have, the first one was, uh, I have two golden retrievers. The second was, uh, second one is, my wife is also in uh, cybersecurity. And the third one was, I can swim five laps in an Olympic size pool. You know what? <sighs> Well, Tim, do you have a? I just heard you intake air. Well, I I I have a theory, and mm. you know, Harshal said something near the beginning about that almost made it sound like he didn't actually have dogs, uh, and I I'm guessing he was just kind of pulling a fast one on us there. And I here's what I think. I actually think it's the last one, but I think it's because you can, you can probably, I believe that you can swim a lot more laps than what you said there. So I'm going to go with the third one. Fascinating. My theory was your theory with one additional step, which is that Harsha would know that we would think that. So he actually maybe doesn't have dogs, but I don't know if I'm going to take myself down that Alice in Wonderland um, <laughs> <laughs> tour there. So I'm going to go. I'm going to go with the second one because we didn't, you know, that interestingly that didn't come at, at all in the locations and the, the life moments of travel. Um, it was not revealed if his, you know, if you met potentially your partner or spouse in Kansas city in California, which may, which may have a major impact. So the lack of information there makes me think this, the second statement is in fact the lie interesting so is this when i tell you which one is a lie this is moment of truth time <laughs> that's it so tim you're you're 
your state, your choice is correct, which means the third one is a lie. But it's not because I can swim more. I don't know how to swim. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll, you know, I'll take the well w. played, Tim. You know, I suppose <laughs> swimming and bodies of water also did not come up um, directly. So there might have been a few holes in my. I mean, there was approach. the mention of the beach and that super That's true. cold water and you know. All that, and then the what happens to the water, and it's like the fog and all these things. Carl the fog. Yes. Carl the fog. Carl the fog. <laughs> Before COVID, my daughter had decided she was going to teach me how to swim. She's five years old. Oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> what a supportive daughter! That's nice. That's pretty cool. That's really sweet. That's wonderful. Um, man, Harshal. This has been a fantastic conversation. We've really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Thank you for for sharing your perspective and more about your experience and just your thoughts on on how to f- you know fix and come up against some really big challenges that exist in our space. So we we thank you for your time and we're really glad that we could have you on today. Such a pleasure. By the way, I love this uh, the moment of truth. I might have to steal a version of this. I won't do the exact same thing, but oh, in my podcast. <laughs> we definitely Please. recommend adding games to any podcast. It oh, is fun. yeah. Absolutely. It is fun for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, hey, here's hoping we um, see you at a uh, security conference or something like that and we get to hang out in person. And then we'll get to find out the story about uh, your wife in cybersecurity because I'm that'll be cool to learn about too. But, you know, oh, she'll be there for- at the conference too. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> perfect. We'll owe you both beverages. How does that sound? <laughs> Fantastic. It was a pleasure, Tim. Kelsey, thank you so much for having me here. Thank you. That's about all we have for this week. You can find us on Twitter, at Domain Tools. All of the articles and IOCs mentioned today will be included in our blog post, which can be found at domaintools.com slash resources slash podcasts. Catch us every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we publish our podcast and blog. We'll see you next week on another episode of Breaking Badness. Until then, remember, don't drink and click. <laughs>